Welcome everyone to the Immigrant's Journey podcast, a space where we grow and learn through immigrant stories from around the world. Today, I am delighted to have with us Young Duong, an immigrant from Vietnam who immigrated to the U.S. during the war to overcome some really incredible odds and become such a wonderful success in the U.S. as an engineer, an entrepreneur, and humanitarian. His autobiography is called Shifting Optics, where he shares his journey of trials and triumphs with humor and optimism. I just want to read a little excerpt from the introduction because I feel like it's such a good point, especially during this time of pandemic and global uncertainty. Young writes to his children and the readers, quote, I hope you and they find a nugget or two in this book that shows the value of being intrinsically motivated to do better, to be better as a person and a member of society. That shows that if you have the talent in something, you have a responsibility to use it to help the world. That shows you can persevere, even through the hardest of times. Stay true to yourself, remain rational through turmoil, act with integrity, keep a strong mind and a strong will. Life can be as complicated as you make it, so simplify it as much as possible. Keep everything in perspective. And you certainly have, Young, in this wonderful book. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So tell us what was life like in Vietnam and what was the circumstances there that pushed your family to leave? So uh, my uh, my mom's parents, uh, my grandparents, uh, maternal grandparents, were, were fairly uh, rich. They were definitely on the upper scale, very affluent. So when communism took over, uh, that was not necessarily the best thing in the world. And certainly, my, you know, my, my sister got to live life a little bit more, uh, you know, with the, uh, the, the, uh, the help and, and everyone there. Uh, I sort of was born after the war. My, uh, I was born because my mom's doctor was leaving on a flight the very next day. And uh, she wasn't going to have anyone else uh, perform the cesarean on her. So that, that's how I got out <laughs> uh, several, several months uh, <laughs> I think a, a month, uh, maybe a little bit more earlier than than uh, than uh, natural. Um, but yeah, my life after the war, I, I can't say I remember much of it. Uh, you know, there were, I, I remember some parts of, of a little more. You know, my parents lived in the middle of Saigon. My grandparents lived in the middle of Saigon. You know, they had dogs, they had cars, which is obviously on the upper end of society. But I also recognize that when communism took over, um, a lot of their normal day-to-day life influence and probably a lot of their freedoms were, were, uh, was influenced so uh, not knowing exactly because we haven't talked about it but my parents definitely left um, Vietnam because of the situation circumstances around them and were they being targeted uh, certainly so so one of the uh, stories that my parents always told is that after the war uh, they had a soldier literally living in their home trying to search out their house for, uh, I think for several months, uh, trying to find any sort of uh, you know, jewelry, possession, anything they have. Um, they were constantly being, uh, watch is probably the wrong word, but probably monitored, um, just trying to find wealth uh, anywhere people can, uh, you know, the communism would, would, you know, certainly wants to take this, take the wealth from the wealthy people. 
And when did they decide to make the, the move and leave? So I think it was it was it took a while to plan. Uh, we didn't leave till seventy nine eighty the first time, um, and certainly the the first time we left, we saw Thailand. The wind shifted on us. We got blown back out to sea. So I spent uh, so we all spent uh, seven days really without food and much water. There was one guy holding uh, with the one gun on the boat, keeping the barrel of water, uh, you know, uh, rationing out the food water from one barrel of water. Um, so certainly there was a lot of stories there about uh, how traumatic that was. You know, there were certainly um, families. I think there was a father and son who was, you know, reusing the water. Um, but you know, in, in hindsight, you know, knowing what I know now, he probably saved the uh, everyone because if everyone uh, uh, didn't get the ration, I think it would have been uh, much worse. Absolutely chaos. Okay, you know, absolutely. Uh, but I think uh, you know the first time salt land. Wind shifted, got blown out to sea. Uh, certainly, I saw death, um, unfortunately, in that case. Uh, and we, when we landed back in Vietnam, we, we hit land, and it turned out that land was back in Vietnam. So we spent uh, months in jail, even me as a kid, uh, my parents. So my mom, my sister, myself got released earlier than my dad. Um, and I've always wondered, um, you know, so obviously, when you make a decision to leave a country, there's an unknown part to it. Absolutely. So that unknown, they sort of saw. They saw that you know tragedy could happen. They saw what could happen. They would get blown out to sea for seven days, right? You know, the, some of the worst experiences possible. And yet, my parents, knowing the situation they were in, made the decision to leave again. So I think that's that speaks volumes to how bad the situation was in Vietnam that they they you know they, they literally witnessed death or stared death straight in the eyes and not only themselves but took their kids their children with them on a, a, you know going back on a journey again to try to leave um, so I think I think that hopefully that answered your original question of how bad it is I certainly don't know this, the specifics but I certainly yeah. can't imagine the uh, the uh, the circumstances the situation that would cause someone to not only leave once, seeing how bad it could be, and then making the choice again to leave. Definitely. And when you left there, did you go straight to America, or were there some stops along the way? So, so the first time, blown out to sea, go back to Vietnam. The second time, we actually hit Thailand, and mm -hmm. uh, we were pirated multiple times. I think there's a couple small stories of, of uh, what happened, but yeah, we were pirated. Like the last time on the beach, I was holding it uh, onto my. Uh, last pair of pajama pants I had and I was you know kids were, were kicking me and trying to steal that oh, God. so uh, yeah but at uh, the very end you know even the, the the Thailand police came and they didn't know what to do with us because we were again pretty early on in the whole immigration and they you know we slept under cars for three days before they figured out hey we're going to transport us to refugee camp Mm. From there, I went. We, uh, we went from refugee camps to refugee camps. Uh, one of the first families to a rather famous refugee camp in Indonesia, Galang. And then uh, from there, we eventually got assigned to the U.S. and made it to the U.S. So you got assigned to the U.S. You could have been assigned theoretically elsewhere. Uh, no, we, we uh, my, uh, my so my uh, obviously my, my parents, my mom's family was rich, so she had my uncles all studied abroad. So I had one uncle in the U.S. and another uncle in Belgium, another uncle in uh, in Paris, France. 
but though, and my my uh, dad's sister was also in the U.S. But the goal was always to go to the U.S. Again, going back to the uh, the beacon of democracy. Obviously, we had choices. We could have gone or tried to go to a seek asylum in Europe, but the U.S. was the beacon of democracy. It was the the, the light that that uh, shone the brightest, and and that's where uh, we wanted to end up. That's where his aims were. Now, how old were you when you first got to the U.S.? So that was in '82. Uh, so not to give uh, how old I am, but yeah, that was around uh, when I was six, uh, six and a half, seven. That's the same age when I got to the U.S. as well. What was the most difficult aspect? <laughs> what was the most difficult aspect of adapting to American life? For me, it wasn't. Um, my my sister had a little bit tougher go, but. Uh, I literally I was out of ESL um, in less than a year. Okay. So most of my friends would say I probably can't speak English now very well, but <laughs> that's probably because I got out of ESL in less than a year. Um, <laughs> I was pre- apparently pretty. Uh, I, I uh, you know, and, and all that time I was watching Three Company. That's how that's how I uh, learned all the English. But yeah, I, I was uh, I was I acclimated to the uh, to the English culture and society fairly quickly. Not, my parents didn't, obviously, and my sister had a, a tougher goal, but, but I guess being young and, uh, and somewhat uh, talented as I was, uh, it was it, the transition was easy. Yeah, definitely. And learning is just so much easier when you're a kid. Younger, yeah. So, so my parents had a pretty rough time when we got to U.S. Right? They were making, uh, literally, they were working uh, odd and job as much as they can. You know, they were, you know, my dad helped a Vietnamese grocery store. He was a bagger. He did try to do everything there. Um, you know, my parents made, uh, you know, this, this Vietnamese dish. with It's like a meat, a sausage. Um, you know, so we would, uh, I remember driving off to, uh, to someone's house late at night. And they would work practically the night. And, you know, we would just sat there with them uh, and help as much as possible. Um, and then go home the next day. Uh, or when, whenever the work is done. So, yeah, my, my parents did odd and end job uh, when they first got here. Eventually, my mom got into uh, working uh, in the mail shop. So she would be uh, a, not quite a postal worker, but more of the sorter and collator in the background. And much of my childhood, right. I spent uh, doing a lot of that, <laughs> was uh, helping my mom <laughs> collate mail and, and uh, stamp mail. Like uh, At one point, I was I was pretty good at uh, just collating and, and stuffing envelopes. Um, you know, two sheets of paper and one DRE. I probably could do that in, at one point, you know, folding the paper and putting it in together, stuffing the envelopes. I think I got as good as 500 envelopes per uh, hour and a half, roughly. Uh, you know, whereas most people who make money- That's amazing. Less than an hour. Yeah, I think the, the best thing I've ever done was uh, I think uh, stamping envelopes. And I think I got to a thousand yeah. envelopes in, uh, in, uh, in less than 30 minutes, probably like around 15 minutes. That's the other day. Jesus, that's a lot of stamping. That's a lot of stamping, <laughs> yeah. But thank goodness I didn't, you know, the trick is you don't have to lick all that. You just get a, a, a sponge and you just get a roll of stamps and do it all at once. So. Oh, exactly. You would have poisoned yourself if you were licking all those things. Some of my friends would think that would help that's me, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> but that's an amazing, like, 
to go from where your parents started out to like where you are today in life and where your sister is as well. Like, tell me about the process of going from being an engineering student to entrepreneurship. So I think um, certainly I don't know whether entrepreneurship is in my blood, uh, but certainly uh, I t even now I'm trying to get established in the, an incubation program at my alma mater to really push entrepreneurship. But um, but certainly I saw opportunities with um, some of the things I discovered as I uh, as I got out of college and I went to work for a company called Applied Science Fiction. Uh, during that time, I was only going to stay for three months and go uh, go off and get my PhD at the uh, Optical Science Center in University of Arizona. Uh, but Austin was too much fun. Uh, you know, Sixth Street was definitely. Uh, you know, you know, having gone from an engineering school where uh, my, you know, it was Rose Holman, uh, my freshman year was the first year they uh, allowed women in, and they only had eight consortium women my freshman year. Oh, wow. So uh, going from that environment to Austin, Texas at sixth year, and then uh, my, and I got into a living situation, I was living with three, uh, three uh, girls in, with, um, you know, off campus. So we were partying and having a lot of fun. And obviously, you know, going from that environment, going, do I really want to go get a PhD in that environment? So um, stayed in Austin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, connect the I's, dot the T's, however you want to say it. But that was a, you know, certainly the decision was not only that. It was, it was certainly the, the company I was, were, was uh, with was a startup. And there was a lot of opportunity yeah. with, uh, getting a, a, a financial reward uh, if the company is successful. So I, I put this into a letter, wrote it, and sent it off to Dr. Shoemaker, who is the dean at Optical Science Center at the University of Arizona. And he wrote back this three-page dissertation on why I was dumb. <laughs> Literally in no... Oh, my God! <laughs> yeah, sort of no, no, no uncertain terms that my decision was not the brightest nor the best... <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and in a lot of ways, everything he said was true. Uh, the startup didn't make it, um, you know, uh, and, uh, and certainly, uh, you know, you know, he, the wisdom beyond years, he, he read my situation, understood where I was and was able to predict exactly what would happen with the startup. And, um, but I think, uh, from that, uh, um, after applied science fiction folded, I had some technology and, um, or some ideas and patents and developed it. Um, you know, it took three years uh, before we got our first funding. Um, and even when we got our first funding, I was so conservative that uh, I didn't quit my job, nor did any of my other founders. So we stayed on, we kept our day job uh, while trying to work uh, this company in the background. And um, it wasn't until we got uh, substantial funding, ten and a half million, I think, was a Series B before we all um, quit our job and and, uh, and actually uh, became part of the company. We're able to go full time. Go full time, exactly. And obviously, that company uh, is still around, but not quite as uh, it's uh, successful as I'd hope. Uh, it's sort of, uh, I think, even now uh, they're pursuing a different technology than what I started with. Um, but that uh, that entrepreneurship, uh, that blood, you know, stays in you. So you, uh, so obviously, I, I, I did it again. 
uh, was able to uh, help another company and that was sold in 2018 to a massive company and with the goal so my goal at the time for selling was you know there, there was a couple fold but the main one was being taking the technology and really globalizing it and the reason for that is that ag tech in itself right trying to feed the world you can only so make such an, an impact right? and obviously when we're with that company you're starting out as a company that isn't focused on feeding the world first it's being to make you know develop technology such that technology can be eventually going to food production. Anything with agriculture now is obviously there's a the US and, and around the world people are passing laws to legalize um, medicinal marijuana and recreational marijuana. Yeah. So uh, in any in the industry, uh, technology that's developed usually go to the affluent first, going to a um, the, the low hanging fruit or in this case the uh, you know the, the low hanging buds I guess uh, first, the one where you can make money. <laughs> And eventually, we'll make it down to uh, less uh, lower margin business. And that's really my aim: is eventually to take everything learned um, uh, in medicinal world and hopefully apply it and actually move it towards uh, growing food. Because you know, fortunately, unfortunately, there's something called Farm 2050 out there, and Farm 2050 talks about uh, in the year 2050, population growth is increasing. The amount of arable land is decreasing, um, yeah. and the, they're talking about 2050 as when those two graphs cross. Uh, certainly, I don't believe that. I think it's going to be further out, but it's only going to be further out where everyone making a, an effort to try to innovate and uh, make food easier to grow or grow more efficient to grow. That's a wonderful goal. In the book, you said a large part of my day to day now is investing in and supporting companies that make a difference. What are some of those companies and what are they up to and which ones are you most excited to back? So, so uh, the good news and bad news of trying to uh, invest in, in companies. Uh, uh, good news is that you're you feel like you make a difference. right? I, I try to go. Um, you know, find companies that uh, hopefully help the world somehow. Obviously, there's some of those, and I have some other investments that are purely out to make money, right? Just to generate uh, wealth. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a one that's focused on online learning, which is good, <laughs> which is uh, a <laughs> talk about doing a good thing at the, at the right time. Um, there's another company that helps uh, with uh, training managers. Uh, as the millennial revolution happens, that millennials become managers, and their managers become uh, directors and C-suites, uh, helping uh, millennials sort of bridge that gap and learning empathy and learning the correct way of managing. Uh, fortunately, unfortunately, I, I've uh, had my fair shares of, and, and I, I put myself into this group, uh, being thrust into leadership positions probably earlier than. Uh, than expected or earlier than than the amount of wisdom that you gather to help you get to that yeah. point. Yeah. Doesn't that happen sometimes because you have a lot of technical experience and they think, oh yeah, he's brilliant at technically doing this. Of course he can lead people as well. And it's like leadership is a different animal. So so yeah, so one of the things that, uh, that that's, uh, uh, I always tell people, I, I definitely never want to be a CEO of a company. 
uh, you know, certainly I, I've had uh, I've had opportunities and, and uh, to go that route. But I'm more of a, a technical individual contributor slash if I need to, I will step up and become a leader. And it turns out that, you know, for my previous companies, when I ran essentially engineering and operations, uh, I did a fairly good job and, and everyone pretty much, uh, you know, the company really grew at that stage. But I wouldn't say that's my strength. You know, I, I am better at uh, coming up with innovative ideas and, and patents and trying to help the world with my technical strength. Um, and to be honest, yeah. HR is just, uh, you know, uh, something that I don't ever want to get into. <laughs> everyone has problems. I love talking to everyone about their problems, but it's a much different story when you're their manager and having to deal with their problems than being a friend and dealing with all the problems. Absolutely. So what is one thing that you wish you could contribute to American society? Um, so part of writing this book is to leave something for my kids. Uh, obviously, there's a little legacy, and you know, this is where dad came from, so don't be, uh, uh, you know, don't be so materialistic because dad never had any of this stuff. Or, you know, uh, all the <laughs> stories about walking barefoot in the snow. A lot of ways, dad did work barefoot through the jungles of Vietnam to try to get through here. So, you know, I could, I could go back and, <laughs> and use that against them eventually. Old school. Old school. Yeah, you're really old school. Um, but uh, my, uh, you know, Certainly, I've, I've done things. I have patents. I think I have 40 some patents now or something. Um, I think, don't think any of that's really what I want to define me at the end. I think at the end of the day, if people can read this book or my kids can read this book uh, or, you know, just being around me, hopefully experience uh, my teachings um, and become better. Uh, not so self-involved, not so materialistic, that any anyone can can have the power to really just make an impact um, in this world. And and by impact, I don't mean like my impact with the patent and stuff like that. That's you know that's that's small. Making an impact to me is getting your neighbors, making your neighbors happy, making your your community around you better, um, doing things yeah. that are. Uh, you know, not so, uh, no, not so self-involved. Um, you know, just, just try to think about the bigger picture. Um, so one of the things that that I'm a little bit proud of is I helped my wife start a company called, or not a company, but a uh, a nonprofit called Perspective Charity. And and what does that charity do? And the uh, the Perspective Charity is. Is exactly what, what I'm trying to do with my kids with this book. You, know, you see the, the theme, shifting off your life in perspective, perspective charity. But the the goal is connect uh, affluent, um, you know, affluent whether that's in the U.S., Europe, even in the, the host country, uh, children with less fortunate children. And obviously, the less fortunate fortunate children would get some monetary support from the affluent children to go to school, have scholarships. So that's essentially a perspective charity giving scholarships to third world countries. But it's more than that, in that it's ho hopefully connecting the children in third world countries with the children, the more affluent children. And hopefully both can see uh, each other's perspective. 
And the goal of that is yeah. for obviously the the children over in the third world country to get an education so that they can get the resource to better the community around them. And on the affluent side, hopefully those kids can see how their resources can help people in the world and hopefully learn some lessons from doing so to as they grow and as they make their own wealth, as they develop more resources to help the world and the, uh, the community around them. Both efforts is to hopefully both sides can make an impact or better impact on this. That's amazing. I just want to say I really enjoyed reading your book so much and I cannot recommend it enough. It's such an easy read and you have so much humor infused into it. Young, I want to thank you for being on the podcast and sharing a little bit of your story here with us today. For the full tea, as the kids say, you can pick up a copy of Shifting Optics. It's available in Amazon. And if you'd like to get in touch with Young, you can contact him via email at dyoungus at yahoo.com. Or if you'd like to listen to more of Young's story, you can find him on the Drew Applebaum podcast called Author Hour, which is a fantastic interview, and I'll put a link in the show notes as well. I just want to thank everyone for listening, and until the next journey, ciao!